Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, we are eagerly awaiting the Fed announcement of their policy tomorrow. And we talk when we talk Fed and all the intricacies of uh, the Fed and what it means for the rates market, there is absolutely no one better to speak to than Ira Jersey. Ira is a uh, BI rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he joins us on the phone. Ira, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, we're going to get, let's say we get that 25 basis point uh, cut tomorrow. Then everybody's going to really focus on the language of Chairman Powell. What do you expect to hear from the chairman? Yeah, I, I think the chairman is, yeah, it's going to be tricky for him. And, you know, trying to discount what he's going to say is going to be difficult, primarily because a lot of the data that we've had the last three weeks or so has been relatively good, where some people are even questioning whether or not they should be cutting rates at all. And they, and they will cut interest rates 25 basis points. That would be, the, the real shock would be if they didn't. So, so the question is, are they going to, uh, are they going to hike more? And the answer is probably, uh, excuse me, cut more, <laughs> hike more. That would be, that would be amazing. But um, <laughs> that, you know, are they going to cut more? And, uh, and what's the magnitude and the pace of that? So, you know, if it was starting in June, we thought maybe they'd cut a couple of times and then wait a little while and then, and then um, cut a bit more if they had to say in early 2020. But, but at this point, it's, it's not obvious that they're going to have to. So I think that he's going to need to be pretty neutral in his statements saying basically like we're going to be very data dependent and that might not be enough for risk assets to really um, to, to really be upbeat after that because I think a lot of risk asset markets whether it's credit and equities have really been reliant on the idea that the Fed is going to cut you know three four times which is what the market has uh, has continued to price well that's exactly my question is it it feels like the market's set up to take anything that Jay Powell does or says is hawkish because it's not going to be a 50 or 75 basis point cut. Yeah, I think that's right, Alex. You know, the, so if they cut 25 now, and then he hints that they're going to cut 25 again in September or October, but don't necessarily expect there to be a prolonged uh, easing cycle. So say, you know, as much as the market's currently priced, which is basically for four cuts by the middle of next year, um, I, I think that risk assets take that badly. Now, do they take it badly in that they reprice a couple of percent and then, you know, find a new equilibrium, or it doesn't wind up being a prolonged downtrend because I think, you know, ironically, if the, the the Fed hints, like I just mentioned, that they're going to cut twice and then and then stop for a while, if that means a two percent or three percent repricing in, in the S and P five hundred, I don't think that the Fed cares. I think that that maybe is actually good, right, from from the Fed standpoint. And that's what kind of what they would hope for. But if it winds up starting a downtrend in risk assets, you know, wider credit, uh, lower equities, that's the type of thing that then you wind up pricing it back in. So there's a weird feedback loop that the markets might actually generate for the Fed, which, um, you know, in, in an environment where the, the economy is muddling along, the, the Fed's looking at the markets for some semblance of what expectations are for the future. And right now, you know, expectations for the future is an okay, but not great economy. So, you know, in that environment, um, little changes can mean a lot to monetary policymakers. So I, we, we had a guest on earlier today who was suggesting that the uh, Fed should bring quantitative easing back uh, onto the table. Do you think that is an option that they would consider? 
It, it is. I, I think that they won't really consider that until after they cut, you know, four or five times. So basically, until the Fed funds rate is closer to one percent, I don't think QE is an option. Now, something that they could do, and something they will do starting the middle of next year at the latest, if not even a little bit earlier, is they'll start to uh, increase their balance sheet just to keep reserve levels constant. So there's this very technical thing that goes on where currency and circulation is is usually rising, and as it's rising, that means that some other liability that the Fed has, such as reserves, continually go down. And they, the Fed has stated that they have a policy of keeping ample reserves in the system. And in order to keep ample bank reserves in the system, eventually they're going to have to start increasing their balance sheet again to do that. Um, and I think that they, uh, they, they have to do that sometime in the third quarter of next year, and they might even do it a little bit earlier. So that is kind of a, a dovish-ish thing, which I think will you know, make the markets happy, particularly risk asset markets, because they kind of don't understand the dynamics. But it, it's, a, it's an optics issue, I think, more than anything. But that could be something that's helpful. That's not really QE. Some people are going to call it QE. It's not QE, though. And, you know, we have a lot of work that we've done. So terminal users can check out BI rates and find some of our information on on the Fed balance sheet and and how we think that will develop over the next year and a half. We love the shameless plugs, Ira. We do it all the time. (laughs) Um, So when you say it's not QE, like then 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 what is it? I mean, in essence, it is providing them more liquidity in the market. It's standard monetary policy. I mean, people don't realize, but uh, prior to the 2007 financial crisis, the Fed's balance sheet increased by about 3 to 5% every year. So going back to that same type of environment where the Fed's increasing its balance sheet incrementally every single month in order to keep reserve balances constant would not be, that's just typical monetary policy. It's not QE, right? The Fed's balance sheet, you know, everyone says, oh, it's so big now and it was a trillion dollars before the, uh, before the crisis. Yes, before the crisis, it was a trillion. But in 1995, it was only $400 billion. So the thing is, is like over that over that 12 year period, it more than doubled. Right. So it's not a that's right. And that wasn't called quantitative easing. Right. Quantitative easing is large scale asset purchases that are a large portion of both the market and also the the size of the Fed's balance sheet, where you're actively increasing the amount of reserves that are in the system, not keeping them constant, which is what we're talking about. Got it. Ira Jersey, thank you so much. As always, when we talk Fed, we need to talk to Ira Jersey. We will wait to see what the Fed does tomorrow. Clearly, we will be all over that at Bloomberg Radio. Ira Jersey, Senior Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us on the phone. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Shira Ovaday, who's giving us a little preview of what we might see from Apple. So, again, kind of, a, you know, these quarters for Apple, they're really interesting for investors trying to get a sense of how well this company is making the transition from really a, a phone and iPad company to maybe something a little bit more on, in terms of the services and so on. What are you going to be looking for, Shira, when the company reports tonight? Yeah, I think that those are important details about revenue has been declining and is expected to continue to decline for Apple's um, iPhone business in this quarter. And I think what investors are watching is both 
how much can they fill in at least some of the gap from other products, things like, you know, Apple Watch and AirPods, and also that services um, business, as you said, which includes things like App Store downloads and Apple Care warranties uh, and the revenue, the, the revenue sharing uh, payments that they get from Google and things like that. The other thing that investors are looking for is anything about China, that uh, revenue from China has been declining significantly the first half of Apple's fiscal year. And the question is, will it get slightly better going forward? And, and the commentary about China is going to be very closely watched, uh, as will anything that Apple says about moving bits of their supply chain out of China and what the impact of that is going to be on the company's costs. So. What are the chances that Apple says any of those things? Meaning that they're going to be like, look, look at all the pretty service revenue. Look at how much that jumped by double digits, blah, blah, blah. Oh, iPhone sales. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be really strong in the replacement cycle. What is Apple actually going to say? You basically just channeled Tim Cook. That <laughs> is you. Yep. Yeah. That is exactly what they say is, yeah, yeah, iPhones, blah, blah, blah. The foundation of our $300 billion look in annual revenue. revenue. Look at this. Right. Look at this beautiful services revenue. And that is the message that they're sending. But look, I've said this before and I'll say it again that there's no way for things like you know app store downloads and Apple music subscriptions and and the upcoming television service there's no way that can fill the gap from declining iPhone revenue if that continues to decline and if you look at the smartphone market writ large that is the trajectory of the smartphone market it's uh, unit sales of smartphones are expected to decline globally for the third straight year in 2019 this is a trend that it seems at least in the near future to continue uh, and apple has not really addressed those broad trends in the smartphone industry and whether it can kind of buck those it's interesting the timing of this earnings uh, call is very coincidental, I guess, with the U.S. trade delegation over in Shanghai uh, negotiating potential trade deal, and no company arguably is more exposed or certainly a poster child for good or bad uh, trade relationships between the U.S. and China than Apple. What do you expect Apple to say about what they're doing to kind of deal with the uncertainty with China? You know, at least so far in the in the last few earnings calls, Apple's been pretty optimistic about the U.S. and China resolving their trade disagreements in some sort of amicable way. Um, we'll see if that happens, right? Apple so far has been relatively immune from some of the tariffs that the U.S. has imposed on goods coming from China. So there are not yet tariffs on smartphones, for example, which is, at least by units, very important for Apple. We'll see if that changes. Um, and yeah, I agree that it'll be interesting to see what Tim Cook in particular says about those trade talks and whether he sees some resolution and, and how. Uh, what is in the stock in that, like, who's the marginal buyer that's going to come into this equity tomorrow? It's it's really hard to know that it, Apple has been, I think it is now at or near its all-time high in terms of P.E. valuation. So this stock, like many stocks in 2019, is pretty expensive. And I do wonder, right, people who aren't already in the stock, what do they need to see from the company that will change their mind? I mean, the, the, the story is not changing, that iPhone revenue is probably going to continue to decline or maybe increase marginally. And so I think the question is, if you get in, it's a belief, a bet that they can find some new product or service that's going to fill in the gap more 
uh, from that declining iPhone revenue. How about use of cash? I know uh, they have $225 billion of cash and marketable securities on the balance sheet. What are they doing with the cash? They're going to give it to SoftBank, the Vision Fund. Oh, that's right. Yes. Right. Have, no, seriously. <laughs> they have so much cash that they can give some of it to SoftBank and have plenty left over to do lots of things. I think Apple's made clear they have $200 plus billion in, in gross cash. They've made clear for some time that eventually they want to get to some sort of um, cash neutral position. And that means they're probably going to give a lot of it back to shareholders in the forms of dividend and particularly share buybacks, which they've already uh, been pretty aggressive on. So I assume that that will continue. Thanks very much. Bloomberg opinion columnist Shira Ovaday, thank you so much again, giving us your thoughts on Apple. I'm sure we'll be talking to you after they report. This week, we have a whole host of economics data um, you know, coming out, probably highlighted by the jobs report we will get on Friday. Uh, one question is, how strong is the consumer? We know the consumer's really been driving uh, this economy. How much is left for the U.S. consumer? To get a sense of that, we turn to Lynn Franco. Lynn is the Senior Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board, and our own Yelena Shilateva from Bloomberg Economics joins us as well. Lynn, what did your data show you today for the latest report? We had a nice rebound in July following June's uh, decline. So it seems that uh, consumers have put that uh, escalation in trade and tariff tensions behind them, and they're focusing back on the fundamentals, which is really uh, employment. And we had a pretty good report, and I think we're expecting another strong report this week. How does uh, the consumer factor in things like trade or the debate over the dollar, for example, or things like that that we talk about all the time in the financial markets? It doesn't seem to impact the consumer that much. It's really the fundamentals, you know, wage growth, employment growth. That's really what's driving confidence. And what we're seeing here is they're, you know, they're assessing both current conditions very favorably, and they're very optimistic that the economy is going to continue expanding. So that should translate into strong spending in the next two quarters. So, Yelena, we we know that the how strong the how important the consumer is to the economy. What is your sense in Bloomberg economics as it relates to can the consumer continue to drive this economy given where we're seeing maybe some weakness in manufacturing, not just in the U.S., but more so outside of the U.S.? Is the consumer still strong enough to continue to drive this economy forward? Absolutely. I think uh, today's uh, reports, both on consumer confidence and early on personal income and spending, really support this notion that consumers will continue to drive economic growth in the second half of the year. So if you look at the profile of personal income and particularly wage and salaries growth in the second quarter, we saw continued acceleration in uh, that profile. And uh, the July uh, reading on consumer confidence, uh, that is, uh, you know, basically the best uh, reading this year, uh, suggests that we will continue to see uh, personal income and consumer confidence driving personal spending higher. Lynn, what are the elements that go into the higher consumer confidence number? What do you guys measure? Uh, well, we take a look at current business conditions and employment conditions, and those are coming in very strong. And then we took a, take a look at consumers' expectations six months down the road in terms of uh, business conditions, employment, and their income uh, prospects there. And it's just very strong across the board. So uh, as Yelena said, it's the highest reading this year. And we think that the uh, in terms of growth, the consumer is going to continue to be a very strong pillar, despite other pockets of weakness. 
And looking at the details, uh, Lynn, if you look at uh, jobs uh, plentiful and jobs hard to get, uh, that actually suggests that we might see a decline in the unemployment rate in the upcoming report on Friday. So jobs mm-hmm. hard to get in- increased a little bit in June, but they fell again in July. And that tells me that maybe there was something about like some temporary hiring and just uh, hard-to-get hard jobs uh, in such tight labor market, but it seems like it's abating and uh, we can see another decline in the unemployment rate. Well, Elaine, I can't let you come into the studio without asking you about the Fed tomorrow. How important is lower interest rates or the prospect of lower interest rates for the consumer and consumer confidence? Is that a big factor? Uh, I think we already see a lot um, you know interest rates have been very low and you already see that in mortgage rates for example so mortgage rates already declined quite a bit but unfortunately didn't really lift uh, home sales that much but you know it's uh, supporting uh, consumer spending like auto sales and things like that i think that's where you see the impact of lower interest rates so Lynn, going forward, you said that, you know, you feel like the consumer can continue on this path. Does it get better, though? Because I'm wondering, like, what the incremental gain can really be from this point, And if we be tied into GDP growth, it's going to be steady as she goes versus better. Well, in terms of GDP, we're probably expecting the economy to grow somewhere around 2 or a little above 2%. Um, you know, we just had uh, spending come in at 4.3. I don't think we're going to get much stronger than that. Um, but I think we can stay around those strong levels, maybe, you know, 25 3.5% in terms of, of spending. Um, and, and also in terms of, you know, getting back to the Fed and interest rates, the percent of consumers who expect interest rates to get higher uh, was the lowest reading we've seen since... Uh, Huh. You know, 2012. So it's already baked in that the Fed is likely to cut rates. Lynn Franco, thank you so much. Lynn Franco is the Senior Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board, joining us as she does regularly with that data from the Conference Board. And Elena Shulietieva, Bloomberg Economics, always uh, welcome in this studio to get the sense, to get the latest on kind of, you know, what's going on in the economy. How strong is the economy? How long can the economy continue to go? Uh, We have the S&P up about 19% this year. The question is, where do we go from here? To get some clarification, get some guidance, we turn to Matt Maley, equity strategist at Miller Tabak. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Start off real quick. What do you think we're going to get from the Fed tomorrow? Uh, yeah, it, I, I'm kind of with the consensus, uh, 25 basis points. Uh, I don't think we'll get the big 50. Uh, you, anything, it's not out of the question, of course. Um, but the the big question is going to be, or, or the big uh, thing we're going to look for, of course, is in the uh, uh, in the uh, press conference when uh, Chairman Powell will give a little bit more in accordance with guidance. I and mean, we've been talking about earnings uh, reports recently, and the more important thing has been the guidance. I think that's going to be the same for the Fed. If they signal, you know, if they signal it's kind of a one and done thing, especially if it's only 25 basis points. That's going to be, I think, uh, kind of catch some uh, investors off guard. However, if they do indicate that they're going to uh, do it another time uh, and maybe even a third time this year, uh, that would be viewed as positive. So how are you positioned then? 
Well, right now it's, it's so weird because we're at this key uh, uh, level in the, in the stock market. You know, we, 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 we talk about, hey, we're making new records, and it seems like, oh my gosh, the stock market's been unbelievable. Well, I mean, it, it is, or has been, uh, but for the last 18, 19 months, we keep getting up near this 3,000 level, and then and we break to a new high, but only a slight new high, and then roll back over. This is a, basically the fourth time we've done it, uh, and it's still only a slight new high. So uh, if we can get further, my kind of magic number is 13, uh, sorry, 3,000. 30 on the S&P, because that would give it a 3% uh, move above its old high. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, if, if we fail again, it's going to be a, a big concern. So uh, I guess the way I, I plan it right now is kind of wait on the sidelines, see what happens. I'm, you know, uh, the one thing I would, two things. Number one, still uh, looking at some of the defensive names in case it doesn't, uh, in case the market rolls over, but also look at gold because it's already broken out of a key a resistance level. And uh, if it can move above 1450, it's going to be a, a real breakout for the, for, the, for the yellow metal. So, Matt, I was reading uh, some of your recent research, and uh, I see you noting that, in your opinion, uh, you think there's a meaningful decline in the stock market over the, ne- over the near future. It's much more possible than most people are thinking right now. What kind of gives you that thought? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, well, two things uh, that stand out to me is, 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 is I, I worry about why, why the Fed is really in, in getting involved in this in, insurance rate cut, well, you know, insur- uh, interest rate cut. Why would they need, feel the need to do that? Is there something that they're seeing? And the thing that really concerns me, now, is, is, most of all, is the action in the European banks. There's been a huge divergence uh, in the European banks, especially over the last few months. I mean, uh, we had the, you know, this big sell-off in the fourth quarter of, of last year throughout the, throughout the world. And, of course, we've all rallied uh, strongly off those levels. Uh, the U.S. market's up uh, 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 28, 29%. Uh, for, I'm sorry, uh, about 25% from those lows. Uh, the European market is up 17% from those lows. And yet the European banks are unchanged. And over the last few months, they've sold off in a, in a severe way, and they're testing those lows from back in December. What's going on there? We know about the situation with Deutsche Bank, or, but we don't know all the details there. And I just, when you get that kind of major divergence between uh, the bank stocks in Europe and not just the the uh, uh, U.S. stock market, but the European stock market overall, it tells me something's wrong out there. And uh, uh, I worry that the, that kind of surprise could uh, cause the market to pull back in a, in a, in a meaningful way. I'm not calling for a, a major bear market, but uh, uh, it's just something out there that con- just concerns me. So the trade has been like buy utilities, buy those dividend proxy stocks like REITs, etc. Um, have you seen the earnings that back up paying up for those defensive sectors? No, that's you know, that's the one the one concern that that I have, especially for, for like the utility stocks, which are you know very very expensive on a historic basis. The one thing with some of the on the dividend paying stocks, it depends on uh, of course what you see, but you get a, a Procter and Gamble that comes out with some pretty good earnings. And and the thing on the dividend paying stocks, I believe, with the market, so you know whether you think the market's going higher or not, it is still we'd all agree that it's at least extended uh, to a degree on a valuation basis. And if you get some of these stocks, not just to pay a good dividend, but have a record of increasing their dividend on a consistent basis for many years, uh, you're in pretty good shape. So be, in other words, they should be able to participate on the way up if I'm wrong, uh, and, and yet better protect you nicely and pay you to wait uh, if, if the market comes back in. However, having said that, the key area to watch right now in, ta- in terms of groups are the technology stocks. We've seen this great rally in the semiconductor stocks. Uh, they're bumping up or actually broke to a slight new high. If they can follow through more, that's going to be very, very bullish, and it'll mean my concerns uh, of about a, a a uh, short-term pullback are, are wrong. 
uh, really keep an eye on those semiconductors. They've been a great leadership group for, for, for decades, but particularly in the last year or two. So, Matt, uh, we're about halfway through this uh, earnings season here. What have been your takeaways, both from the earnings, maybe some of the, the outlook that we've had from some of these uh, reporting companies? Well, the one thing is that I've really found is, is is that as much as it some of the you know the high profile names have done you know have had some great earnings reports and some uh, and some good guidance. Overall, however, it's been a you know a, an, an okay earnings season. I mean, the, the the thing is, as it always happens, the estimates were lowered so much that of course we're, they're being beaten, and that's great. But it happens every quarter. I mean, I don't care how good the earnings are, we, they they always beat expectations. The question is. What are we going to get for the full year? And the full year uh, guidance has been coming down all year long. Fourth quarter, people were looking for a, a big pickup in the fourth quarter of 10 or 11%. That's now down to about 5% or about 5.3%. Uh, so the, and as we've halfway through this uh, earnings season, those, that for, for, I'm sorry, future guidance hasn't come up at all. If anything, it's actually come down slightly. So as good as the headline numbers are, I'm sorry, for the big profile uh, names, the overall earnings things has been only okay and a concern me uh, that uh, you know the valuation levels are tough. I mean, everybody talks about what the you know, don't fight the Fed because uh, they can create a, a, a good a multiple expansion. Now, the problem is you still need good earnings. Uh, multiple expansion can't do it by itself. So quickly, just just to round it out here, um, what sector is most vulnerable? Well, it's funny. Uh, I mentioned that the, the one of the things that could be the most beneficial here would be the, uh, the technology stocks. The problem is it could also be the most vulnerable if they don't fall through. And uh, so it's, it's kind of a, uh, that's why I, I say you got to step, sometimes it's good to just sit there and wait to see what happens. You need, you don't need to, you know, you can miss the first couple of percentage point moves uh, because if the technology stocks roll over in a meaningful way, anytime in the near future, they're most vulnerable because especially in the semiconductor area, they don't have the big uh, underlying fundamental growth uh, that some of the other groups have. So, uh, uh, I know I said kind of talking about kind of both sides of my mouth, but that's why it's such a vital point or critical point uh, in the stock market right now. And that's why it's also critical for the, uh, the uh, technology stocks. Matt Milley, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Matt is an equity strategist at Miller Tabak joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz. One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.